Thanks a lot, Greg. Happy to be here. CFO, chair, and CEO. That's the order from what I remember. How are you finding the role of CEO? It's been really interesting, Greg. I, um, I obviously came out of retirement or semi-retirement to take the role on uh, and have loved it. It's been just fantastic, kind of delivered everything I expected. Obviously, the uh, last 12 months have been pretty challenging for the business, but you know, I think we've, we're on a path to really turn the business around, refocus it, and we've got some great people in it. That, that's what keeps me coming every day. What's the big difference between chair and CEO and CFO then, Zlatko? There's very few people we get the chance to have this sort of conversation with like that. Yeah, if I think back to, and it's a great question, Greg, I think if I think back to my days as a CFO, I think you, you get the luxury of being able to focus to a greater degree. So, you know, if, if we're doing a strategic plan or working on a transaction or developing a budget, you know, you, you could almost block other things out to a yeah. large degree and that just gave you the, the headspace to, to do what you needed to do. Um, you don't get that as a CEO. Yeah. There are so many things that are going on in the business. You've got to be across it all and you've got to be comfortable. You've got the alignment in the organization. People are doing what you expect them to do and we're caring for the people that we've got in business. And you know, that kind of resonates in a different way than I felt as a CFO. Who do you go to for advice and as a CEO? I look at a lot of people, frankly. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm lucky I've got some really capable people on the board and they've all got different experiences. So yeah, I'll tap into that depending on what the issues that we're dealing with. Um, I've got a lot of people that I've worked with through my career. So yeah, Tom Gorman, for example, who was a CEO at Brambles, was just outstanding as a leader. So you know, I regularly talk to Tom about issues he's faced, what I'm seeing, you know, bouncing things off him, getting some advice. So um, tend to get a lot of external input, um, but I've got a great team as well. So yeah, part of what I try to do is make sure we've got people sitting around the table that are comfortable voicing their opinions having that kind of debate. And that's what I really love, you know, just the diversity of opinions we've got. And you're also CEO at one of the, probably the most interesting time Borrell's had for many, many years. Um, where, where do you see it going? Yeah, interesting times is a good way to describe it. So we've obviously gone through a pretty significant transformation over the last year or two, Greg. And if I think back on the first, first 12 months, um, a lot of work that went into you know, being clear on the strategy, being clear on the portfolio, we executed $5.5 billion worth of asset sales. I think we returned about $4 billion to shareholders. And that really set us up to focus back in Australia. So I feel really good about how we executed that. I've got to say this financial year that we're in at the moment has just been one of the most challenging I've ever experienced. And I yeah. think probably one of the most challenging the company's ever experienced. We started in the first quarter with COVID lockdowns in Sydney, then South Australia, then Victoria. Second quarter, we had what I thought was bad weather in October, November. Just a little bit of rain. Uh, then we had floods <laughs> in February, March. So I thought it can get worse. And frankly, that's just continued into yeah. April and May. So you know, we've had two trading uh, updates, one in March, one in May, off the back of that really strong weather we've seen. And then you overlay inflationary impacts and us trying to fix the business and, and improve it in the background. A lot of headwinds we've been dealing with, but that's why we're accelerating some of the self-help. So I feel good about what we're doing, how we're reacting to that. But yeah, if we didn't have the headwinds, I think the business would be in a completely different situation. Where, where, where would you see it then? Well, I think, uh, so there's two things that are different today than maybe what we were experiencing even two or three years ago, Greg. One is the market's a lot stronger. So 2018, 2019 were good solid markets in Australia for construction. Um, construction materials were doing really well. Yep. 2021 were terrible. Yeah, okay. And you come out of those doldrums, what we're seeing today is you know, every time there are blue skies, the order book's full and probably full to an extent where the whole industry struggles to, to supply the market. So I feel good about that underlying market demand. Um, 
And once we get through some of these disruptions, like you know, what we saw with COVID shutdowns in the first quarter and then the weather we're seeing this year, there's no doubt we'll start to see what this business can really do. But this is the opportunity for us to really you know, tackle some of the opportunities that we might have thought we should do next year or the year after. we just got to accelerate it. How are you getting your message across, Ladko? I know we'll talk about your career and how you got to become a CEO, but right in your spot right now as a CEO, motivating people, how are you getting that across? Oh, look, and frankly, it's tough. Yeah. There's no doubt about it, Greg. When you think about this business, and as a company, Borrell hasn't, for example, seen short or long-term incentives really pay out in a meaningful way for three or four years. So for yeah. senior execs, it's a tough environment, but mm. equally the business hasn't performed, so you shouldn't expect to get those incentives. The motivation for me really comes back to people understanding that this is fundamentally a good business that probably you know, wasn't run the right way historically. So you know, trying to paint the picture of how this can be a hell of a lot better than it was even two, three years ago, understanding that some of the temporal issues we're facing today won't be there in the future. Yeah. And if we take those tough decisions we've got to take today, then you know, the organization we'll be left with really will own that leadership position it should have in the industry. But it's all about communications, mate. So, yeah, we're conscious about making sure people understand the journey we're on. Not everyone likes every message, but, you know, we face up to the leadership group, the top 100, 150 every two weeks, okay. talk about what's happening in the business, talk about some of the bad news that people don't like, don't, doesn't resonate with them well, but nobody shirks away from that. And I think that engagement, that alignment's important to, to making sure that leadership group's there. And once a month, we have a town hall with the entire organization. And we try, as much as technology allows it, try to make it two-way as well. So questions in advance, questions using Teams, they, people can do that virtually. So once again, we don't shirk away from anything that's on people's minds. And I think that credibility, that transparency, the authenticity is important. I thought you were going to build an NED career. So why did you, um, <laughs> why did you take the call? And what uh, did you respond with the yes? Well, I think I did build an NED career. <laughs> Look, I was, I was really enjoying it. I had just spent um, almost four years at Brambles where I was traveling internationally three weeks out of four. Yeah, right. And my twins were seven years old at that point in time, and frankly, I wasn't seeing them. So it was lovely being Qantas's number two traveler, but yeah, it comes at a burden. So um, I made that decision for, for a change, but I wasn't ready to retire. Yeah. I was loving what I was doing. The travel was a pain, and I was at that point 48 years old, so I was still young, had a lot lot to give. So the three boards I took on, I took them over a period of 18, 24 months, um, I thought were just really diverse. You know, everything from Coles to Star Entertainment to Adelaide Brighton, different sectors at different states of maturity with different challenges. And I just felt like I was seeing the whole economy mm. with the exposure I had there and working with some fantastic people on the three boards. But I'd never really retired. So I was also advising PE firms on a number of large transactions. I was on the board of Wollongong University. I was doing a bunch of things with my kids. It felt like I'd retired into a seven-day-a-week job anyway. Yeah, right. And then I got the call about Borrell. Um, yeah. And what really attracted <laughs> me to it was, look, I love the Ned thing. Um, what I missed, though, was being immersed in the detail and yeah. seeing some of the issues through. So you, you can provide advice and counsel and things like that on a board and challenge and you know, cooperate and collaborate in different ways. But owning issues, being there seven days a week, that's quite different. And Borrell was an opportunity where I felt like it was an iconic brand name in Australia that had probably kicked a few own goals in the few years prior, prior to me joining. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, wasn't loved by the market, 
had made some poor decisions and I felt like I could contribute to making it better. So that's ultimately what got me off the off the reserves bench. So you uh, you knew what you're walking into then, to a point. To a point, yeah. I'm glad you added that to a point. I, <laughs> yeah. I had a general gist, uh, <laughs> and maybe more than a general gist. You know, I was chairing Adbri, so you know, constantly looking over yeah. the fence, and I I would marvel at the quality of the assets and positions Borrell had. Yeah, but always scratch my head about it doesn't really translate to the performance that I would have expected. So I had a good inkling about where some of the problems were. Um, a lot of people gave me advice as well. So yeah. I did what I called a listening tour when I was first announced before I started, spoke to shareholders and others, and everybody said, if you just sell the US, everything's going to be fine. But with my experience at Adbra, I knew the Aussie business wasn't performing the way it could. And then we had this 50-50 joint venture that was focused on plasterboard in Australia and Asia, which once again, didn't feel like it fit. Yeah, right. So there were a lot of things there where I had a reasonable idea of where I thought some of the issues might be, but I needed to dig into that. And that's kind of what we did for the first three to six months. So it's purely an Australian business now, isn't it? 100% Aussie. Yeah, we were in 17 countries. We're down the one. Where are you going to take it? I don't think we need to take it anywhere other than really improving what we've got and running it as well as we can, to be honest, Greg. And that, that might sound really simple, but it's, it's a complex but simple business. So we dig up stuff from quarries, we manufacture cement, we mix it up with water and sand, you make concrete, and then we pour it and place it. Sounds really simple, but if you're going to run it well, you've got to have an eye on you know, the quarry position you've got, resources that are close to the market, and how you're going to manage that over the next 20, 30 years. We didn't do that consistently. We didn't think about the next generation of quarries. Um, we didn't actively manage our network. So, you know, for anybody in Sydney, you're well aware of Western Sydney Airport. Yep. It's been spoken about since I was a kid. Yes. We didn't have a position out there. We actually had a property out near Western Sydney Airport. We sold it. And you think about what's going to happen at Western Sydney Airport, what will happen with the Aerotropolis. Yeah. So much construction activity and we didn't have a position. So we didn't think about our network in all of the different parts of Australia and how we manage that network well, how we make decisions early and then how we run that business the way we can. So when you ask where we're going to take it, it's about running it the way it should have been run for the longer term. And then once we've done that and we're comfortable, which to me is probably a three to four year proposition, then we can think about what else. But there's so much opportunity embedded in the business. That's what we're going to focus on. How do you take people along a journey? This is an enormous change you're talking about, isn't it? It's an enormous change, but I think it resonates well because if I if I think back to the conversations I have with people in the Australian business, there, there are a couple of things I heard early on. One was Australian business is a cash cow funding the US. So there was this sentiment oh, really? around we're unloved. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, it's the most mature part of the business, probably the best position uh, in construction materials in Australia, but wasn't really focused on it. And I think people recognize that. So having sold all of the non-Australian businesses now, people get to see that we are focused on, on Australia. We also, because of the Headwaters acquisition and some decisions we made, we didn't have the capacity on the balance sheet to run the business the way we wanted. Yep. So cash was short for a couple of years. You know, we, we raised quite a bit of debt and that constrained what we could do and the way we should run the business. So people saw that we weren't making the right decisions for the long-term benefit. So I think that's now resonating. We've fixed the balance sheet. We've got the capital. People see that we're thinking about the longer term and how we build property positions, but we are going through some tough challenges. You know, there's no doubt that it was a business that wasn't as linked up in Australia as it should have been. We didn't run it as well as we could have. 
you know, it's not a simple business in terms of the way we've set up our overheads. So we're going to have to take some tough decisions to really right size the organization, but that's with a view to then setting us up to be successful. That's tough. It is tough. Yeah. Yep. And well, I, I, uh, right rising is an easy word, but it's a tough thing to do. Yeah. I remember growing up in Wollongong in the eighties when, um, you know, the steel business was going through all the challenges and yeah, you know, one of my enduring memories was my dad worked at the steelworks. So yeah. To think that that business went from 22 to 25,000 people down to eight was the last time I worked there. And I think it's even less than that today. Yeah. Yeah. Having this constant threat over your head of people being made redundant, not having a role, not having options, um, the impact it has on family. So I don't think anyone takes these decisions lightly, but in our context, we've got to make those decisions. Otherwise the whole business doesn't get to where it needs to be. It's like an interesting name. Where, where are you from? So I was born in a city called Bitola in a country that was called Macedonia, which used to be part of Yugoslavia. And I think it's still there. I'm not sure. I've never been there. Never been there. So I was born there. Well, where, the, that's where Alexander the Great comes from. Apparently. Yep. Uh, so we left there when I was 18 months old, mate, and I've never been back. And, um, you, and you grew up in what, in Wollongong? Grew up in Wollongong. So we came straight to Wollongong. And basically I lived there till mid to late 20s. Uh, I went to high school there, went to university in Wollongong and I took on at that point, BHP had what they call cadetships. Yep. So straight out of high school, Yep. worked full time, went to university part time, which for me was fantastic. First of all, my family didn't have a lot of money, so it was great that I could go out and earn, but I got to really put into practice some of the stuff I was learning at uni. So it really helped me with uni. Um, but then it really opened my eyes up to the opportunities that you have in a company like BHP. You know, I love Wollongong. I've still got a place down in Wollongong on the beach. But you know, Wollongong is a small place. So yeah. for me to then be able to go to live in Melbourne, in Perth, in Europe, in the US, that's stuff that I probably didn't even imagine I'd be doing during my career. So did you see yourself as a finance person? Would you study Bachelor of Commerce, what, major in, a, in accounting <laughs> at the Gong or what? I did. So I, I did a Bachelor of Commerce in Accounting and then I did an MBA at Wollongong. Yeah, okay. Um, but the reason I did the BCom was because of the cadetship at BHP. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I toyed with things like uh, economics and law and stuff like that, but you know, we weren't in a position where I could go to full-time uni. So that's where the cadetship really panned out. And I just found I, I was good with numbers. I love maths. Sadly, took to accounting like a duck to water. <laughs> But I really, the business part of it really resonated with me. Yep. And I got to the end of my BCom degree and thought, yeah, I've done all the accounting stuff. That's, it's kind of second nature to me now, but didn't feel like I had end-to-end really good understanding of business. And that's where I went back and did my MBA. Okay. And that really helped me understand international business, the, the sales and marketing side of it, you know, what you need to do around customers right through operations, planning and other things. So that's where it kind of all got joined together for me. What did mum and dad do? Uh, both unskilled migrant workers that had menial, low-paying jobs. So my dad basically looked after raw materials and mixing those raw materials for different steel grades. He's BHP as well? Yeah, BHP. Okay. And my mum worked at what used to be a clothing factory in Wollongong called Midford. So I remember Midford, yeah. Yeah, yeah so yeah. her job was ironing 500 shirts a day. Is that right? Yeah, good yeah. fun. What did you take away from that, that, that upbringing? That's a hell of a big risk and a journey for them to come to Australia, start from scratch yeah, and look, back I, you all the way. Yeah, I absolutely think so, Greg. And you think about, so I had the opportunity to go with BHP and do an expat deal in the UK. Yeah. It's not real hard, right? So when you get on a plane and, and they kind of look after you from accommodation, deal with visas and stuff like that, you kind of get pampered. So 
to think that my parents got onto a plane with a suitcase and an 18 month old with no job, no place to go to, and didn't really speak the language at all. Yeah. Um, it's just a really tough call for them to make. But if I look back on my experience with my parents, you know, the kind of selflessness is something that really resonated with me. And their focus on giving me and my brother the opportunities that they saw that we couldn't get if we'd stayed in Macedonia, they, they always put us first. And I had a lot of cousins and friends who growing up, you know, would, would kind of pigeonhole themselves to some degree and think, well, you know, I'm a migrant kid growing up in Wollongong. I'm probably going to end up working at the steelworks. That's my lot in life. All right. Okay. I never felt that. So my parents would always say, look, you're bright enough to do something. So focus on education. We don't want you to go work at the steelworks unless it's in some kind of professional career. But they they really kind of sacrificed to put us through uni and kind of give us those, those advantages. So yeah, that's the thing that's kind of stuck with me. Where'd the big break come at BHP? Well, it's a couple of big breaks, to be honest. So I'd been with the steel business in Wollongong for 10 years, absolutely loved it. But once again, I knew there's a big world out there and I had never really experienced it. I think I might've traveled overseas once at that point. And then somebody said, oh, why don't you come down to Melbourne and join the petroleum group <laughs> in a global role? And I'm thinking, dude, I live in Wollongong. So I'm gonna, now I'm going to go live in Melbourne in a different industry that I really don't understand and take on a global role rather than one that's kind of Wollongong centric. Mm. But I said, yeah, let's go have a crack at that. I think I was 27 or something like that. That for me was just eye opening. It gave me, it was more of a corporate role rather than the operational finance role I've been doing. Yep. I opened my eyes up to a completely different industry that you know, w- was really good to me and uh, gave me a lot of professional and personal experiences uh, that I'll always enjoy. But it then kind of, sad to say for a 27-year-old, it forces you to grow up because you, you're kind of living in a different environment. You can't rely on people you've, you've known, you've grown up with your whole life. Yep. Um, but the learning experience was just brilliant. Took you around the world, didn't it? It did. So I ended up 23 years with BHP, almost 20 years in the oil and gas sector. The first role in, in petroleum took me down to Melbourne where I was living there with my wife for seven years or so. Spent a year in Perth, came back to Melbourne got offered a role to London. I did that for a couple of years. Um, They made me CFO of the petroleum business while I was there. So I did that for a year out of London, moved to Houston, where I was CFO in the same role for three years. Twins were born in Houston. And then I thought, do I run or raise my family in Texas? I've been with BHP for 23 years. Uh, It might've even been you back then, mate, in your old gig. But uh, yeah, there are a lot of questions from people around, you've done a lot in your career, you're very, very global, but you've never been a listed CFO. I remember that. Yep. Yeah. And I thought, well, let me show you. <laughs> so there was an opportunity, well, a couple of opportunities I looked at, one in the UK, one in Australia. Ultimately, we decided to come back to Sydney and I took on the CFO role at AllSearch. Before we go to AllSearch, just can you talk us through, Slatko, what did working internationally bring to you? And is it valued enough back here, do you think? I think it's recognized. I'm not sure it's truly valued the way I would expect, Greg. So uh, what did it do for me? Let me give you a couple of anecdotes. It might show you know, the naive kid from Wollongong or an Aussie, yep. you know, kind of living in a different world. So I remember having just moved to the UK, uh, me and another guy had to call the, the CEO of Petroleum who was traveling for investor meetings in Paris at the time. And we had to talk about something to do with the transaction. So we got on the phone called him up. Somebody at the hotel answers in French. Oh, sure. oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't expect that. <laughs> I don't know why. I was calling France. 
But yeah, then I uh, fumble your way through that. But that for me was, um, I kind of grown up in a bubble in Australia and that's all I knew. Yeah. And then you kind of get smacked in the face with it when you're living in Europe. The diversity of cultures, the way you interact with people, language issues, you quickly have to pivot to be able to be successful. And the other anecdote I'll share is I was working on a transaction when I was there in London. And I think I can talk about this now. It's probably 15, 20 years ago. But we were looking at potentially doing a deal with one of the oligarchs to get into potash in Russia. And I think they picked me because I had a surname that sounded Russian. <laughs> and people, well, it does sound a little bit like that. Well, yeah. they might have assumed I speak Russian, but I didn't. <laughs> anyway, so I was involved in that project team and uh, spent a lot of time in Moscow dealing with the other counterparty, working through, is this the deal that we really want to do? And we got towards the end of the process and somebody thought, well, somebody better go have a look at these mines just to make sure they actually exist. So, you know, young guy over here gets the Guernsey of uh, traveling to a place called Perm. Is that Siberia or where is that? Middle of Siberia. And the way you get to Perm is catching an Aeroflot flight at midnight from the domestic terminal in Moscow and arriving in Perm at 6 a.m. in the morning. And it was the middle of winter. So I rock up to the domestic terminal. There are no signs in English. No. Not too many non-Russian speakers travel at midnight. So I kind of worked out which flight I should be on. I got onto the Aeroflot flight. There were four seats, I'm going to say in business class. You know, it was just me and another guy who they sat next to me for some reason. <laughs> and even before the flight took off, the guy pulled out a litre bottle of vodka and just offered me some. And I said, no, 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 I'm on business. I'll be cool. Plane takes off and we're about five minutes into the flight and I could hear whistling of wind through the front door. You're kidding, are you? Nope. So I looked over at the guy and I said, hand the bottle over, mate. <laughs> and I, I had a little bit of the bottle, but the bottle was empty by the time we landed in Perm at 6 a.m. And I got off at the other end and it's a little regional airport and I'm not exaggerating. I got off the plane and there was a short, stocky guy with black pants black turtleneck and a black leather jacket with a scar on his face. Mm. And he looked at me and just nodded his head as if to say, follow me. Oh, what could go wrong here? So Nice people. Yeah. No, he looked fine. <laughs> very very yeah. friendly. Not very threatening at all. <laughs> so like, oh, he must be for me. He kind of looked at me and winked. So we got in the back of the, uh, the SL Merc and we're driving for about an hour through the snow, through the middle of the forest. And I get to the other end. And like, it was fine. It was a town that was built around these potash mines. The local managers there were, were all expecting me. First thing they offered was, you know, would you like to have a sauna with us? So, no, nah, mate, just show me the freaking mines because I want to get out of here as soon as I could. But they're the kind of experiences, once again, if you'd asked kind of 15-year-old me, I would have said no. Like, I have no comprehension that I would ever be doing something like that. But it's part of what you kind of build through your career and you look back on that and go, it's just a fantastic experience. Glad I'm still alive to talk about it. That might not have happened in other circumstances, but um, you end up thinking about how to deal with people, how to negotiate in different circumstances, mm. how to get yourself out of you know, pretty tricky situations, but it was just a brilliant outcome. You're listening to No Limitations with special guest Zlatko Tordacheski. In our next episode, I sit down with Tim Ford, Managing Director and Chief Executive Officer of Treasury Wine Estates. In every team I've, I've led and now the organisation that I lead, you know, strengths-based leadership is 
absolutely the fundamental to how we build our discussions around feedback, our development process, how we understand our team and what their specific strengths are. It's a very simple tool. People understand it. It's motivating, you know, and it's positive. You know, it, it's energising. So it's a really, it's a, it's a much more glass half full view of, you know, how you look at an individual because everyone's got strengths and everyone's got weaknesses. And I've just always figured that if you spend 90% of your time focusing on what you're good at and getting better at it, you're going to have a much greater impact and enjoy the ride a lot more than focusing on the 10% that you're not good at. Be sure to join us on our next episode. And now, back to the show. How did you find living in America? Oh, look, it was really different. I think if you'd asked me, Greg, before I went to either Europe or the US, I would have said the transition to the US might be easier than London. Uh, I think what I've worked out is rugby playing countries are an easier transition for Aussies, or at least for me. So we absolutely loved living in London. And then we moved to Houston and it was quite different. Houston's just a really weird place anyway. Yeah. Some people love it. Yeah. Um, at that point, we were consolidating all of our kind of corporate roles in petroleum into Houston. So I brought a lot of Aussies, a lot of Brits over there. And basically, I fell into two camps, either loved it, you know, the lifestyle, the large house, you could buy a Porsche really cheap, you have a lot of domestic help, all that stuff, or yep. the others that just found it, you know, lifestyle that was a little bit more superficial. Yeah, right. Um, look, we were there for three years. My twins were born there. They've got the honorary Texas birth certificate, so they can be present one day. Um, <laughs> but we, we were also happy to leave. Oh, really? Hmm. Fair enough. Oil search beckons. Yeah. All right. Covering a different part of the world as well. It is, yeah. Well, I hadn't been to PNG until that point, so I thought, let's give it a crack. All right. So what was the challenges you were facing there? Well, a couple. So uh, once again, I had a bunch of guys like you telling me that you know, transition to a listed CFO role was challenging. So I thought, yeah. let's have a crack at this and see what it looks like. Overrated or not when we say that? Oh, look, maybe it was my experience, Greg, but I went from the complexity diversity of you know, BHP's petroleum business that was operating in so many countries and so many joint ventures and on a scale that was really massive to oil search that was doing some great things, but really a P&G focused business. Yeah. So I found the complexity diversity was lower. The challenges were, were large, but yeah, it wasn't as taxing. And frankly, I don't think the investor facing stuff, the listed part of it was as taxing as you all made out. So <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> so what'd you, what'd you solve there? Well, there was a couple of things that I found really interesting. One was, you know, if you look at oil search's history, um, it doesn't exist anymore, but it went through a period of really significant growth. Mm. And even when I joined, people would talk about the days when I had 23 people in the business, yeah. and it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. But we were at the point where we were about to sanction oil search's share of the PNG LNG project, and our share of the capital required for that was bigger than the company's market share. Is that right? Oh, sorry, market cap. Yeah. So, you know, we're sitting there thinking about not only how do we fund this overall project, which was done through project financing, but how do we secure our financing for our equity, which, you know, we hadn't secured at that point in time. And how do we work as part of a joint venture where Exxon was clearly the operator, brought a lot of capability, but didn't know how to operate in P&G. Yep. And fortunately, we had a lot of people with a lot of deep experience. And I think at the end of the day, it ended up being a really good partnership. Great asset, great result. Yeah, real strong focus on what's the right thing to do for the communities um, because there were a bunch of landowners through the LNG project right from you know, where the resource exists up in the highlands through the pipeline trail right down to the LNG facilities on the coast. Yeah. And there are a number of landowner groups. So thinking about how you split the community pie with those landowners, 
that was one of the, the best things I'd been involved with, just thinking about that benefit sharing progress. Now, I don't know how much of that ultimately made its way to the landowners. Yeah, that's interesting. But itself, the thinking, the structure, yeah, that was really, really good. Early days then, you're starting to see parts of the Pacific in that regard from a what's playing off at the moment, say, with Fiji, et cetera, going on in China. Yep. Do you see much of the sort of activity up there in those days and relationships being built or was it, well, we had it pretty much covered? Oh, I think it was still pretty much, um, the strength of relationship was with Australia, Greg. Um, mm. Yeah, there was clearly a Chinese presence, as there is in a lot of countries, mm. you know, merchants and, and a lot of traders, they had a lot of businesses there, but yeah, definitely not the presence you see today. Um, yeah. And even at the point, I think I was about to leave oil search, you know, there was talk about building large uh, shipping facilities and things like that being backed by the Chinese. So it was just starting to hit, but it wasn't big back then. Yeah, okay. Brambles. Yeah. Just before or after the pallets got lost? <laughs> well after. <laughs> I'm sure. They, agreed. they never got lost. We just didn't know where they were apparently. So. <laughs> How many was it? It was an enormous amount, wasn't there? At one yeah, stage? it was a couple hundred million dollars worth, if I recall correctly. <laughs> Interesting company, global. Yeah, and that's really what the attraction was. Look, uh, frankly, I... Um, I wasn't sure what I was going to do at the end of all search, and I, I was contemplating just packing it in and maybe going surfing, doing stuff like that. But Tom Gorman reached out to me and said, look, we, we're recruiting for a new CFO. You've got no experience in logistics, but you're a global guy, so let's have a chat. And from that very first meeting, Greg, I knew he was a guy I could work with. But the attraction for me professionally was getting back to something that's more global. Having spent 23 years at BHP, and then going to AllSearch, which is a great business, but really focused on P&G. I wanted something that was complex, global again, and I got it. Yeah. 63 countries you know, with billions of asset movements a year and how you track that and make sure you don't lose the equipment and you can yep. find it again, people pay you. That was just on a completely different scale of complexity. Well, so you sold off a major asset as well, didn't you? Well, when I started, uh, Brambles had decided, so people might be familiar with Recall, Yep. Uh, document management system. Yeah. So um, maybe give us a rundown. What was Brambles focused on in those days then? It had gone, if you go back in history, Brambles had done a bunch of things. It yeah. was, I think at one point it was Australia's largest diversified business. We had tugboats, we had armor guard kind of businesses. We actually ran dry cleaners and all that stuff. So there was a lot of work that predates me that really got it to focus on pooling in the main. So pooling of assets, principally pallets, but looked at pooling reusable plastic crates and uh, aerospace containers and the like. But we also had this information management business, and that really didn't fit, and everybody yeah. recognized that. So prior to my joining the business, uh, there was an attempt to sell that, that business, and it didn't pan out. So when I joined, um, kind of first job was not only learning the business, but then working through what do we do with recall? And I think part of, on reflection, part of the issue was that we were running down a single track. We were trying to sell recall without a plan B. Yeah, okay. And a lot of PE interest, as there always is, until yeah. there isn't. And then we had to pivot and it, you know, we couldn't sell the asset. So my first job became, we'll work through what the right thing to do with recall is, but it's got to be something that's executable. So we ran a dual track process of firstly anchoring on a demerger of the business, but secondly being open to trade offers if they were to come. Yeah, okay. But we're very clear that we're committed if it's if there's no trade offers, we're going to demerge this thing. And I'm going to say it was one of the best outcomes for shareholders. If you look at the outcome for recall, as well as Brambles being able to focus on pooling, uh, and then ultimately recall was taken out by Iron Mountain. So shareholders did fantastic well off the back of that. What was the scale of the transaction? 
Uh, well, I think when we demerged, it was a couple of billion dollars, and, I'm, yeah. and I think it was maybe three to four by the time that Iron Mountain took it out. Not small. No, it wasn't small. Yeah, good outcome. What did you like about Tom? You said you said that for that first meeting. That's that's pretty special. Well, it was pretty special. He, look, one of the things that resonated with me, he asked me, because he, he knew my background being a migrant kid and all those challenges, and he said, how big's the chip on your shoulder? And I said, Tom, I don't have a chip. I went away for two weeks and it just played on my mind because I knew I had a chip. You know, I went to public school. I didn't speak English. You know, all, all that stuff that maybe some others experience, I, I didn't get to experience. So, you know, when you got a battle, there was a chip there and I just didn't recognize it or kind of didn't share it with him. But the second interview we had, I said, Tom, you, you just kind of spent two weeks in my head and I haven't been able to get out of it. So in that first meeting, it felt like he'd almost sized me up straight away. And we just had a really frank and transparent conversation in that second interview. And then I think he knew he wanted me and I knew that I want to work with him. And we're you know, almost completely aligned through the whole time we worked together about what we want to do with the business. So what in his mind was the CFO? Was it the business partner? Yeah. No, look, you can pick up a whole bunch of numbers, guys. That's not really what he was looking for. I think he was looking for a partner that would help him think through some of the strategic issues in the business. And most of our conversations weren't about the financials, they were about entering new markets, you know, which businesses we might need to sell, how we might pivot into new growth legs, things like that. That that was the interesting thing. So why did you leave in the sense of moving into an NED career? Why didn't you pursue the execs? You're exhausted, I understand that. That's essentially what it was, Greg. There's no, nothing more to it. You know, I had looked at a couple of CEO roles at that point in time, but I just felt like having worked for the length of time I had with my twins being seven or eight years old, not really seeing them and having a billion frequent flyer points that I probably never used was just useless. Yeah, right. And I wanted to go and do something different that gave me the flexibility and variety. Mm -hmm. So it was one of the toughest decisions, but uh, I came back and I remember sitting in Europe on a holiday with the family and just had a conversation with my wife, like, this is not working out. I don't think it's good for the family. Travel's really getting in the way, but I don't, I don't, I want to do the right thing by the company. So I came back, had a conversation with Tom and said, Tom, this is what I want to do, but I want to give you 18 months notice. Okay. Let's plan through the whole process, make sure, you know, we can do this in an orderly way. So I felt good about the way I left, but for me, it was about going to do something different, Greg. And I think the attraction of doing the Ned thing was it gave me the flexibility to do other things, mm. but it gave me the variety that I was really looking for. And I was just really lucky with the three companies that I joined. Did you find it fulfilling? And you think there's enough focus on business first compliance? I know that comes up in every conversation, but where do you actually see it? It's like, okay. Well, it's the, the, the kind of pendulum has swung way too much to the governance side of it, Greg. There's yeah. no doubt about that. And I think most directors would tell you, it's definitely my experience, the amount of time you talk about compliance, governance, all that stuff, relative to how do you make the business better? How do you service customers? the balance just isn't right. And I can only see it moving one way. So it's getting tougher and tougher, but the good thing, and it kind of depends on your philosophy as well. I was not ever a director who turned up for six meetings a year and then waved goodbye at the end of the meeting. Um, I, I was really engaged in all three boards to the degree where, you know, if it was uh, Coles, I would be doing store visits or, you know, distribution center visits, talking about some of their capital projects and how I might help them with my experience. So I enjoyed it from that perspective because I could really add value, um, but not everyone does that and they don't see their role that way. But you definitely get more of a governance bent 
Why do you think after doing that, you were right to be a CEO? Any doubt in your mind? No. No doubt? No. And look, I, I, it probably sounds arrogant. No, no, um, no, no. You've got to be confident. Yeah. And it's, um, it was a couple of things. So one was- You hadn't, been, you hadn't been a CEO before? No, no. I hadn't been a CEO. Um, had worked closely with a lot of CEOs. And frankly, my perspective of what I thought the challenges in the business were, were more about some of the skill sets that I brought. So- some some poor decisions made around particularly one transaction. Yep. I found it a really unclear strategy that Borrell had at that point. Mm-hmm. Couldn't really articulate what that strategy was. So we're a construction materials business in Australia, building products in North America, and a joint venture that was focused on plasterboard. It yep. just made no sense. Okay. Um, and then we had a stretch balance sheet. So we had to work through how to solve that. Mm. And I felt like at that point, I didn't know the depth of some of the question marks around the operations in Australia. But what I could see, those challenges, at least from my perspective, seemed to fit with what you know I had done, what I could add to the business. No sacred cows? That was one of your comments, yeah. wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was. How'd that go? Well, to their credit, you know, th- that was one of the things that was really important to me coming in. Yeah, you know, I, right. I, I recognized that the board that employed me was also essentially the board that had um, you know, supported the decision to acquire Headwaters. So I didn't want to come into a role like this that in a business that clearly wasn't performing, didn't have support from the market and have any constraints put on me. Hmm. I didn't know what the answers were, but I wanted to be able to unravel that and have a pretty frank conversation with the board about how I thought we need to move forward. Mm-hmm. So when we spoke about sacred cows, that's really what swung it for me. You know, the board being open to considering anything that came out of that review. And we said that on day one when we announced my appointment. And frankly, they supported me through that. There was nothing that was off the table through that first six or nine months of the reviews. Board's changed a bit. Has changed a bit, yep. What's it like now? It's a good board. We've obviously got the two seven group representatives. We've got a couple of new directors that have joined us, Mark Johnson and Jackie Chow. I think everybody's really diligent and I like that. Uh, I've got to say, Ryan's one of the, the hardest working uh, executives I've ever dealt with. And you know, I get in the office early. He's in there before me. Yeah, right. So- I don't think there's anyone on that board that doesn't contribute from you know their experiences and from a view of how to make the business better, which, which is ideally what you want. And it's not a board that rolls over. You know, you hear a lot of stories about boards in the past that might just be there to support the CEO. I don't, I don't see that. Mm-hmm. You know, when I need support, I think we have really good, robust conversations. But I get to see the challenge. I get to see. Uh, the stretch that we all want, and we've got good alignment on where we think the business potential is. So I guess a lot of the audience out there is probably wanting to know what's what's it like working with the new ownership structure, and what's you know how do they operate, and, and how do you see it different to what you've been exposed to from from an ASX experience historically? Yeah, I think the important thing to keep in mind is you know Seven Group has seventy percent of the business. Yeah, exactly. So uh, they have put a lot of money into the business. Yeah. So they see the potential. They've backed. Uh, their judgment on that that um, potential with a lot of money. And I think, Greg, it's important to recognize others saw the potential, but nobody pulled the trigger. So you've got to give Seven Group credit for recognizing it and acting on it. So I always start with when you've got 70% of something, you know, you've got the right to be really involved and really engaged, and they are. But the good thing is you know, they, they entered the register and then increased the 70% because they saw that potential. And that's the thing that I keep, you know, everybody focus on because we're all in the same game. We want to make Borrell the best business it can be. We always know the crown jewels are in Australia. Uh, it's a business that has had a lot of potential, hasn't delivered. 
And the question is not, can we get there? It's about how do you move forward? So any debates or misalignment is about sequencing priorities and, and how fast you can move. But I think everybody recognizes potential is just massive. So how are you operating? How are you functioning as a leader then? What are you learning about yourself? Um, resilience. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If I think back, it almost feels like the, uh, the old sophomore syndrome. So the first year was really good. You know, we, we kicked goals with all the transactions we saw. We fixed the balance sheet, clarified strategy. We set uh, ambition, purpose, values. So the organization knew where we were going. Yeah. And the second year, we came off the back of the seven group takeover, COVID, rain, floods, supply chain more issues. rain, supply chain disruptions, massive inflation, energy costs coming up. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so you can sit back and huddle in a corner, hope it goes away, or you can kind of face into some of those challenges. And I'm proud of the team because that's exactly what we're doing at the moment. There's no use whining about the weather, but the question is, what are you going to do about it? And if I give you one example, Greg, so you know what traditionally happens in the concrete industry when it rains is you know, orders are generally cancelled late the night before or early the morning of. Would you need to be what? Because it needs to be covered to pour the rain? Yeah. So you, pour the concrete. Yeah, that's right. You tend not to pour it in, yeah. in rain because you can't finish it properly. Yep. But our team has been really nimble and flexible. And even a couple of weeks ago, you know, one of our, our younger guys, when we had a lot of cancellations and it was planned to be a really wet day in Sydney, it ended up not being wet. Started doing the ring around the customers saying, well, it's not that wet. We've still got a lot of capacity that's uncommitted. You know, would, would customers ABC want to kick off jobs? We, we did almost a full day's work on that particular day where, you know, in the old terms, people would have just shut up shop and gone home. Yeah, right. So just learning to be flexible and nimble and working around some of the constraints that you can't control, that's what the team's doing really well. So what's changing in terms of just habit, innovation, culture, Latka? Look, I've got to say, innovation's been one of the really strong suits at Borrell, Greg. We had an innovation center in the US in San Antonio, which we had to close down when we sold everything out of the US. But... We have an innovation center here in Botany, in Sydney, and we've got some fantastically passionate people that are all about how to make the business better, how to service customers better. And frankly, if I look at a couple of examples, we've got a suite of low-carbon concretes that yeah. perform as good, if not better, than you know the rest of the industry. And it's little old borrow out of Australia that's created those. So that's one great innovation. We're working on carbon capture and what we call recarbonation when you combine carbon with construction demolition waste. Yep. So it gets permanently stored back into concrete. Um, we secured a federal government grant a couple of weeks ago for $30 million that we're doing some feasibility work on to see you know, how do we partner with a company called Calix here in Australia that's developed great technology around um, capturing carbon that's produced through the, the process of making cement. Once we get through that feasibility, we'll make a decision on whether we're going to invest. But it's our innovation team that identified that opportunity, created the opportunity, put the grant submission in, and you know to have the federal government support you with $30 million of grant money is just brilliant. So innovation, I won't say is in our DNA, but it's core to who we are today, and we just don't want to expand that. But I think that just permeates the business. It's a business that has been quite customer responsive, even though you know, not done in a, in a consistent way across Australia, but really factoring in Strong technical capability, but how do we support our customers? How do we get ahead of what they need? And how are your customers responding now is like, huh? Yeah, I think probably not always happy. So yeah. if I think about some of the things that customers deal with on a daily basis, ours is an industry where 70% of the time your product arrives on time. 
sounds good, but if your pizza doesn't arrive 70% of the time of time, it's not good. So we've got to improve service as an industry and Borrell needs to do the same. So that service piece is not front of mind. You still tend to water concrete in a very, very old fashioned way rather than an app like you tend to do with everything else these days. So there's that ease of doing business piece that the industry and Borrell needs to work on. I think what I'm seeing today, though, is some of the things we're working on are starting to really resonate with customers. So we went out in August of last year with some of the most ambitious decarbonisation targets in the industry, and that really resonated well with customers. Well, I read them. Are they achievable? Yeah, absolutely. You want to share some of that? Well, I'll tell you. So we set targets to reduce carbon emissions by 46% before 2030. Yeah, I saw that. And zero well before 2050. So when I think about what's behind the 46% uh, before the end of this decade, there are, there are three things that we're really focused on. One is using and essentially moving away from coal yep. as the energy source to fire our kiln. Okay. Uh, we're investing capital, what's called the chlorine bypass, so we can take more alternate waste streams. We've been taking waste wood as part of the energy mix. It's about 15% today. With the investment we're making, we'll take a lot of other waste streams that'll eventually get us up to 60% replacement of coal. Interim step till you've got a final solution uh, around um, renewable energy, but it gets us off coal, which is great for uh, carbon emissions. The other thing we're, we're really focused on at the moment is, is some of the work that we're doing around green energy. Yep. So uh, outside of our kiln in Berrima, we use electricity at all of our batch plants and other plants. So we are actively in a tender process at the moment, um, looking at green power solutions or even solar behind the meter. Uh, they're the two things that will ultimately get us onto renewable energy right across the business outside of the kiln. What about the cost, though? Okay? Well, at the moment, it's comparable. Well, at the moment, it's actually very, very comparable yeah. and very economic. Going back even when we started this project six or nine months ago, it was comparable to power prices back then. Okay. So it's looking pretty attractive at the moment. Okay. The other piece is really accelerating our low-carbon concrete strategy. As I said, we've got a suite of three products. Um, they perform as well, if not much better, uh, in the case of our top-tier product than traditional concrete. Um, we've got cement replacement of anywhere between 30 to 50% um, through those products. And sitting here today, in key markets where we've launched those mm -hmm. products, we're at 25 30% low-carbon concrete versus traditional concrete. So my aspiration is to ultimately for LCCs to be the default product. Now, if you're a customer and you call up, you shouldn't have to choose between low carbon or traditional concrete. I'd ideally want it to be the default product, but we're seeing a lot of support from customers as we make that transition. What's your competition doing then? Oh, look, everybody's focused on the same stuff. Uh, I'm going to say our product's better, but you'd expect me to say that. What's the point of differentiation then? Well, there's a few things. One is it's an innovation that's created domestically with an additive that is Borrell's innovation. So Australian made, Australian created, we're, we're rolling that out. But it can't just be an LCC because everybody will claim that they've got a low carbon concrete. It's yeah. got to be easy to handle. So um, you can't make it difficult for people who use traditional concrete to switch. And our products perform exactly the same. So you don't have to wear any special PPE or anything like that. The, the thing that really resonates well with people though is it's not just a low carbon product. Some of the performance and engineering um, quality we get out of it means that our customers save money during construction. So if you're building a high rise, for example, and you use our top rated Invisia product, 
you get better shrinkage performance, early strength, which means you can strip form work fast, which means you get more productivity on your tower. So it's lower carbon and gives you lower construction costs. So when you're able to articulate the customer value proposition, thinking about all of the benefits these products bring, that's where customers are really loving it. What's the future look like in infrastructure? You're pretty optimistic, bearing in mind all these, as you say, some of these headwinds you've been facing. So why is it looking so good? Well, first of all, between state and federal governments, they've all really focused on having a strong pipeline of opportunities. Now, the issue is it's a very peaky pipeline. And when you see some of the supply chain constraints and inflation we're all battling with at the moment, uh, I'd love to see a more orderly pipeline that's kind of spread out over decades rather than over a five, six-year period. And that resonates with Infrastructure Australia report that came out um, earlier in the year. But it's a great pipeline because it gives the industry confidence about the amount of activity that will be there spread almost nationally. So I love that as well as when you overlay what we're seeing with you know, the benefits of detached housing activity in the last 18 months or so, the resurgence of what we're now seeing with multi-residential coming back into the market, so apartments and towers, and you know, the recommencement of more non-residential construction. The market's looking stronger than it's looking in three or four years. What are you looking for in terms of people these days, Loco? Again, as you said, the organization <laughs> shifted somewhat. It changes almost daily, to be honest, Greg. So if I go back to late last year, you know, one of the key constraints for us was truck drivers. All oh, right, yeah. Could not find truck drivers. So um, the team's really rallied around that particular issue and starting to solve that, both you know, bringing people into our organization as well as working with third parties who have access to trucks and drivers. So that was something we tackled and continue to face. Um, quarry managers, there's a lot of demand for quarry managers, which is perplexing because there haven't been too many new quarries consented in Australia, but quarry managers are pretty short. So we're working on how we train, retain, remunerate, incentivize uh, all of the people we've got, but also provide opportunities for people to step up in those roles. So quarry managers have been a challenge. The most recent one that hit my radar screen the last week or so has been allocators. So, you know, individuals that uh, determine which product will go on, which truck delivered to which customer in which delivery window. Quite a manual task uh, in many companies, but finding people that can deal with that complexity and use their knowledge to optimize all of that, you know, they're in short supply these days. And we've got some brilliant people in our organization, so we want to retain them. So the low levels of immigration hurting? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. If you think back to um, pre-COVID days, roles like drivers and semi-skilled trades um, we had a lot of capacity. I think mm. we've struggled over the last two years with that. It's just, it's left the market and there's no clarity on when it's going to come back. What are you looking for in a good leadership member in the team? What's a uh, different horizon now? Yeah, a couple of things, Greg. Clearly, if it's a functional head, you know, I take that functional expertise for granted. But yep. what we're trying to build, and I think we're on the path to building, is a high-performing executive leadership team where people contribute but challenge. And you know, we've had some great conversations more recently where people in the main are now in a position where they feel they can challenge me, where they're confident enough they can throw an idea out on the table without getting laughed out out of the room. Um, that's not what I saw when I first started. So having those active debates with a focus on what's, what's best for Borrell, that is ultimately where we want to get to. But I'm going to say that's a little bit different to what I saw when I started. You know, people were fixated on their part of the business, not collaborating in a way that you'd expect, not comfortable challenging, 
kind of thinking about you know, the motivation of others. And that just wasn't a healthy environment. So when someone comes to you, or when you, sorry, when you go through the process of hiring someone now, what are you looking for in background then? Well, I look for not only what they've done, but how they've dealt with some really complex situations and particularly looking for failures and what they've learned through some of those. Yeah. Um, are you really? Yeah. Yeah. And, and what I find is sometimes people are hesitant to share those, but when, when you have those conversations and you get to the nub of, you know, what was a really poor decision? How did it not pan out? How do you react and respond? What would you do differently? How did you engage with people? How did you try to pivot? You really get a sense of how they're thinking about it. And in all of the interviews I've done uh, for my direct reports that are entering the business, it's about how do you think about business? How do you think about strategy? So I don't want people that are fixated on their functional roles, for example. I want people that can contribute right across the business. And I'm, I've been really fortunate. You know, we had and have got great CFO. We've got a great head of PNC, people and culture, who not only contribute in their particular areas, but are thoughtful about strategy, competitors, customers, how we knit the business together, how we build engagement, what leadership role modeling looks like. That's ultimately what I'm looking for. And how do you inspire me if I was working for you? Well, I want to understand what motivates you, to be honest, Greg. I, yeah. I tend to spend a lot of time with the people in you know, the top two or three levels within the organization because, yeah. first of all, I want people to know me. And it's not that I just want them to see me on a video screen twice a week. I want them to feel like I am authentic. And when I say I'm approachable and I want to understand issues so we can fix them, I want people to have that personal connection with me. But I want to know people as well. And I don't universally have this level of knowledge, but I want to know people's personal circumstances, you know, what motivates them, what aspirations they've got, stuff like that. And I think that for me, that personal connection really helps them build trust. And with that trust, you know, people buy into what we're trying to do at Borrow. Once again, not universally. I'm not yeah. going to say that's the case yeah. with everybody, but sure. I think we're building really strong alignment. So how do you actually create high performance then? As you say, this is this is a huge transformation, change journey, et cetera, you're going through, okay? And you've got to yeah. keep everyone focused and you've got to get an outcome, as you've expressed, and as the yeah. market's wanting as well. So how do you get high performance? Yeah. So let me first say Borel's not high performance today. Okay. Yeah. So everyone knows that? Yeah. Well, does everybody acknowledge it? Maybe not universally internally. Yeah. Okay. But I think we need to recognize that this is a business that's on a journey. And frankly, we're about 12 months into what I think is a three or four year program overall to fix the business. And it's not that we fix it because it's fundamentally broken. It, I think it's it's a business where we've made poor decisions and we haven't focused on the basics of what it takes to be successful. So when you talk about high performance, it's doing the things you should be doing really well and paying attention to that kind of stuff. So I, you know, one of the things that I first saw when I joined was we didn't have a performance rhythm. What does so, that mean? Um, yeah, didn't religiously review monthly results to a level of detail that I expected. Uh, didn't have, you know, the frank challenging conversations that, you know, I was used to in, in other places. There was probably a little bit of denial about where the business was. Um, still see that today. You know, people are really passionate about the business, which is fantastic. But a lot of people have been with the company for a long time or have only ever worked for Borrell. So yeah. may not necessarily see what is contemporary in other companies or other industries mm. or what other businesses are doing. So part of our role and my role is to really educate our people on what does good look like? 
Where's the opportunity for borrow? Why are we making certain decisions at certain points in time? And what does the business need to look like in the future? So once again, I don't think we're high performing, far from it. I think there's more of things that we need to do, but we're starting to build a visibility and understanding of what needs to happen. You're starting to get that rhythm then? Yeah. So we, we have a regular cadence. I catch up with my leadership group to do a trading review every Monday afternoon. What happened last week? And it's not about reporting what happened, but you know, what do we do about it? So how do we pivot? How do we react and respond? Um, we're building a cadence around this monthly performance review and getting to a level of detail where people you know, can't talk about generalities or consolidated information like what are the top 10 best performing concrete batch plants we've got? What are the bottom 10? And what differentiates it to? How do we kind of lift the whole pool? Uh, thinking about our quarry assets. So you know, what's the next generation of assets that we want to put our footprint on? We've got a significant property portfolio. In the past, we thought about that portfolio as $30 million of revenue each year. That doesn't create long-term value for shareholders. It just clips the coupon each year and in some cases sub-optimizes it. So how do we build an understanding of how valuable this portfolio is and how we unlock that? They're all the things that we're unraveling, we're shining the light on that I don't think the organization really thought about. In the way I'm used to. So how do you operate, Slacker? What's we you know, you get up out of bed pretty early in the morning as you say into work. Yep. yep. When you, you know, when do you take time to think or how do you go about it? you tactically thinking, strategically thinking? How do you engage? You know, what's what's your style? Yeah, a, a couple of different ways. So look, it's hard when you're in the office and engaging with people and we all tend to have back to back meetings. Yeah. Yeah, you get into a rhythm where you're dealing with tactical stuff. Um, I'm pretty fortunate where I live in Barrel, so every time I drive to Sydney or drive home. I've got a good hour and a half in the car. So I'll either talk to people that I haven't been able to catch up with just to check in on how things are going. Well, that's my think time. Unfortunately, I also wake up early in the weekends. So, <laughs> mate, I'm up early and my family is not. So I tend to, to do a lot of things to catch up then or think about challenges we've got or think about the week coming up. So that's how I stay on top of it. Restructuring, taking people to the future. Yep. Everyone buying the message? Oh, look, no, I would never be so arrogant to suggest that everybody buys the message, Greg. Um, yeah. Once again, I think people, uh, some people, not most people, but some people were in a comfortable world where they knew what to expect and it had operated a certain way for a long time. So when you think about change, it's confronting for everybody, particularly when you're not sure. You know, you've got a new guy turns up that says, this is the way we want to go. This is the thing we want to do. Some things that have operated well, others haven't. It can be pretty confronting, and I, I recognize that. Mm. Um, but you know, making sure you've got good, strong alignment, you've got good capability, but then you've got the right behaviors, that, that's the piece that I'm finding is really important. And you only get to understand how people are aligned when you can have those frank conversations and people feel confident to tell me when they see stuff that's not kind of kosher. So once again, I think we're building all of that. We're building that alignment, but you know, there's a lot of people who were in the business two years ago that aren't there. Anymore. And the pace and the pressure, how's that been? I'm going to say that this is probably the highest pace that I have ever worked at for right? a consistent period of time. Yeah. But I also think that's what the business needs at the moment. Um, yeah, we don't have the luxury of being orderly and picking and choosing what we're going to work on. And you know, when, when you're thinking about Building a strong customer-facing business, restructuring the organization so we've got clarity in what people are accountable for, fixing the way we work, reinvesting for the future, they're all tough challenges. Mm. 
and once again, when you when you're bringing everybody along, and not not everyone buys into that or thinks it's the right thing to do, it's just it takes a lot of energy. But yeah, we're running at a fast pace. So, what's the best advice you've received so far? It's like oh, during this period of time. The best advice during this period of time. Well, one of the directors said to me early on, back your judgment. Mm. And it was a great piece of advice because once again, I didn't have the answers. I had an inkling three, four months into the role about where some of the challenges were and how we unpack that. But I've always been a fact-based guy as well, Greg. So although I'd listen to people and I'd have a lot of people presenting to me their views on things, it, it tended to be kind of the urban mythology of what we told ourselves in the past. So I'll give you an example. I'm looking at the stone business in North America, and we had told ourselves and told the board that our volumes were declining because stone as an external facade was losing share to fiber cement board. And we believed it. When we unraveled it and we got to the facts, we weren't losing share as, as an industry. We were losing share as a company. Other stone manufacturers were growing. But we had told us this stuff and, and uh, people had just believed it without really evaluating. So, you know, that's probably the second best bit of advice that I've had over my career that was really important in Borrell. It's right. Don't necessarily believe what people are telling you. Unravel it. Make sure the facts back that. And if they don't, let's get the facts and build on it. But that's been the one thing that's been important at Borrell. You're going through intuition now? Are you actually backing intuition a lot more than fact? Well, yeah, I, I think I am now. I definitely wasn't to start with because I didn't have the knowledge of the business. Once again, I had inklings of where some of the things, where some of the issues and opportunities were, but I hadn't yet dived into the detail. So having been with the business now for two years, I've got a much better sense of where I think some of the complexities are. It doesn't mean once again that I know all the answers, Greg. Mm. Um, I work really closely with the leadership team around their experiences, what others are doing, how do we recalibrate where we want to get to, what's the right outcome for Borrell. But I've got a clearer picture of what held us back in the past and what I think needs to happen in the future. So it's much more intuition today. But you've also got to convince people. So it can't just be gut feel. Yeah, right. So that's where the facts are important. And when people tell me, you know, we're a great performing business, we don't need to change, like you've just got to look at any basic benchmarks and it's just not factually correct. So how do you break down your day or your, or your week or your months? Like, oh, what sort of percentage do you put on strategy? What percentage of time do you put in engagement? What percentage of time do you look at making a fair amount of change or driving a particular um, transformation program with your team or restructuring? What, how do you break it down? You got, like I said, this is a tremendous <laughs> business case we're, we're talking about as well, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, and I'd love to say it's conscious, Greg, and each week I do 25% on strategy. It just doesn't pan out that way. No. So if I think back to the first two years, it probably over that two years breaks down to maybe a third on strategy, a third on the organization, a third on performance and execution, but it just, it's very, very fluid. So we went through a significant exercise uh, last calendar year to develop what we thought the right strategy for borrow going forward was. Mm -hmm. So there was probably about a 90, 120 day period there where I spent an inordinate amount of time on what are our competitors doing? How do we think the industry is going to transform? How do we differentiate borrow? What are our customers need? All those strategic questions. Yep. And I'm not saying I don't do that today, but I definitely don't do it to the same degree because I think we've built the clarity. And as we move forward now, it's about, you know, what are those touchstones that confirm we're on the right path or that our thinking's right? So there was a lot of effort on strategy 12 months ago, less so today because it's more about execution. 
Um, the first year I was in a role, there was a lot of work on transactions. You know, we had to clean up the portfolio, sell the offshore piece, reset the balance sheet so we had the capacity to do what we needed to do. Not doing as much today. You know, mm. we're focused on Australia today. It's operational. If I think back to the last four or five months, it's all been about organization, getting lean, being nimble, getting rid of a lot of the complexity that business has got. We're not through that yet, but it's much more operational, much more tactical. But that's what the business needs today. How's productivity going? The only reason I ask that, there's a bit of a debate out there between having people back, not back, people being you know, forthright and putting forward their ideas, et cetera. You mentioned innovation earlier. Yep. Where do you, as a CEO, where do you see productivity? Yeah. So look, if you'd asked me pre-COVID, Greg, I would have said in the office five days a week, the experience I've gone through, and I'm sure a lot of people have gone through, I've realized you can be more productive, at least my experience, and you don't have to be in the office every day. So we are in Sydney trialing permanent hybrid at the moment. Uh, we had a number of office locations. So the corporate office was in North Sydney. We had another operational office in North Ryde, and we've got a few others spot around the place. We consolidated North Sydney, North Ryde, first of all, save a couple of million dollars, but it was more about the culture, making sure everyone's combined rather than thinking about corporate and others. Was that symbolism in that regard? Yeah, absolutely. I had a great view of the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House. Yep. Freaking expensive view. Like that just does not reflect an industrial business that frankly wasn't performing. Yeah, right. It's an overhead that we just, we should never have had. So the symbolism there for me was I want to be North Ride where our operation team were. Yep. But we also are not the business that should have harbour views. So there was definitely a bit of symbolism, but there's a reality of saving a couple of million dollars a year. But when we combined the offices, we wanted to trial permanent hybrid to see whether it works. We're still going through that trial, so I can't tell you whether we'll stick with it or not. Um, but three days in the office on a scheduled basis, so you can have that face-to-face contact collaboration that we need, make sure we've got alignment, people feel connected to what we're doing. But I still work from home one or two days a week and you know, I'm able to plow through a bunch of things when I don't have other distractions. Energy, you're an expert in that. You've had plenty of years across it and, and now on the receiving end of it. Yeah. Where are we at? In the whole, <laughs> whole discussion, the cost, et cetera, doing business. What's, it's like, hey, it's penalizing you. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. And look, we, we, we've made some calls that in hindsight we'd l- rather unravel as well, Greg. We use coal at our kiln in Berrima. We use gas at our kiln in uh, Maroolan, as well as some of our Asheville operations. We use electricity across the board. And we have 3,500 on-road trucks. So we're uh, a high user of diesel. They're all so far north of where they were 12 months ago. It's not funny. Mm. And I don't think anybody would have contemplated $400 a ton coal or $100 a gigajoule gas like we saw in Queensland earlier in the week. It's just outrageous, frankly. So if you think about a resource-rich country that's having to stifle manufacturing because of those kind of energy prices, it's not sustainable. So something's got to change. Now, we, we need to run our business as well as we can in that context, Greg. And, you know, I spoke about you know, weaning the business off coal and we will ultimately transition to something that's more renewable. Mm-hmm. We will work with OEMs around, you know, what a non-diesel transport um, solution looks like in the future, but that could be eight, 10 years away. That's right. Um, we are looking at behind the meter solar and renewable PPAs, stuff like that. So there are a bunch of things that we are working on, but they're kind of in that three to 10 year horizon. So we've got to deal with what's facing us now. Yep. Unfortunately, part of that is increasing prices. Just with the pace at which energy costs have increased, we're having to pass that on. That's just the reality of, of what we're facing. The supply chain disruptions 
mean that you know the costs of transport's increasing. So we're yeah. having to pass that on. We're not just relying on the customer though. So there's a lot of self-help here that you know we need to continue to focus on making our business leaner. That's why we're doing the overheads review. There are a bunch of other things we'll tackle. But to the degree that we can take costs out of the system to offset what we're seeing with inflation, that's important. Change of government going to make much difference, do you think? Oh, look, once again, I think we run the business as well as we can in the context in which we operate. So uh, hopefully it doesn't make too much a, of a difference. Uh, I think the focus on sustainability aligns with our ambitions around what we're doing with decarbonisation. So if anything, I think that'll be constructive, supportive. I'd like to see a lot more action and alignment around energy costs. That's the thing that's crippling a lot of manufacturing yeah, at the absolutely. moment. So what do you need to see there? What needs to be delivered? Because like, huh? everyone's talking about it. Manufacturing is going to go through the floor if this doesn't get sorted. Yeah. Well, you know, whenever you're exporting stuff rather than you know, using it domestically, that, that's just going to put more pressure on the system. That's right. So you know, if you look at LNG prices today, and I spent a little bit of time in the industry, Yeah. Um, there's so much gas going offshore today rather than being held back for domestic consumption, yeah. whether it's domestic or, or industry. Um, so, you know, there's going to have to be some tough policy decisions around making sure that we look after domestic manufacturing as well. And I'm speaking purely as a borrow CEO mm -hmm. rather than as a consumer or somebody that's worked in the industry. But to see so much manufacturing leaving our shores or being challenged at the moment, you know, a lot of small manufacturers going to the wall, that's not sustainable. What do you see in the States? That's changing now or not? So what's happening in the States was really the the influx of fracking. So I am old enough to remember conventional gas prices that weren't as high as we're seeing in Australia today, but on the rise. Yep. And a lot of people, including BHP and myself, working on how you import LNG into the US. And we thought that was going to be the solution. And within five years, fracking really turned that around. That's right. Much more of a manufacturing process. You know, the US is now a net exporter. Of, of gas, but their domestic prices are like $2 today relative to the 16 bucks that I was seeing. So um, the US today, if I think about manufacturing, has seen a resurgence in manufacturing because of those cheaper, you know, particularly gas prices, but off the back of that lower power prices in the US than they were seeing even 15 years ago. Standing bags, like uh, looking across the world, what's, what's worrying you? Look, I don't worry about the world so much, to be honest, Greg. I'm really focused on how we make borrow better. And there's not a lot that's happening in the world that impacts us directly on a day-to-day -day basis. So I, I do think about um, manufacturing in Australia, particularly our manufacturing, because we are one of four domestic kilns that manufacture cement in Australia. Yep. Now, if we don't resolve energy, if we don't resolve productivity, we've seen a number of kilns close, that's a trend that'll continue. I think that would be a shame because then we're going to be reliant on completely imported cement and yeah, we're seeing what's happened with uh, all the closure of refineries. Yep. I think that would be a massive shame. So that's that's more about our productivity rather than the world, but we're going to have to rely on the world if we don't get the productivity. Outside of that, it's really just making the business a lot leaner and, and learning from others and technology that might be relevant here. But as I said, with, with some of the innovation we've done, Greg, I think we're kind of leading the way in some of those areas too. No worry about wage growth? Yeah, once again, domestic issue. Uh, yeah. I'm gonna say, I know we're seeing it in a whole bunch of different markets, but Look, we, if I think back to the first half of our financial year, we saw moderate wage growth between two, two and a half percent. I think that was definitely manageable. Yeah. You know, pressures are probably at three, three and a half percent. I know we see others talking about five percent as a managed CPI, yeah. but if I think about our enterprise agreements over the last decade or so, they have been ahead of CPI. 
Yeah. So to now think that CPI is a trigger and it wasn't over the last decade is just foolish. So that's not going to happen. I, I don't believe that I will see 5% wage growth. Um, it's just not sustainable. It'll put a lot of businesses down. So it, it is an issue, but equally, I think we all recognize the environment we're operating and a shortage of labor. What's success going to look like? Like in a couple of years' time, what's it going to look like? What, what I'd really love for Borrell, um, Greg, is, it for, is for customers to think about us in a different way. You know, the recipe for concrete hasn't changed in 2,000 years since the Coliseum was built. That's right. So <laughs> the way you differentiate yourself is a couple of things. One is being very, very customer-focused and very focused on service. So that's forefront of our minds. Now, how do we do that? How do we understand the customer? How do we develop solutions rather than just sell them a product? And it sounds like a little bit of MBA lip service, but I think we're building relationship with customers where we're understanding their pain points, some of the issues they face and how we might play a role in that. So I really want to differentiate Borrow from that perspective. I want to have a suite of products that customers feel are differentiated. And I really want a team of people across the organization that are working together in a way that's really focused on how to make borrow better rather than, you know, kind of divisive thing that we had in the past where people were focused on their part of the business. So right now, it's like, oh, you're in the press on a regular basis. The company's in the press on a regular basis. Yep. You enjoying it? Oh, do I enjoy people talking about downgrades every couple of months? No, that's not fun. Um, but I knew that came with the role. Yep. I don't mind the scrutiny, frankly. I, I think it's absolutely appropriate when the business doesn't perform or there are external things that you that impact you, you've got to react to, you should expect that kind of media focus. You know, the analysts tend to see through some of those temporal issues like weather. Yep. But equally, you know, our exposure to energy, the the heightened inflationary environment we're in, they're real live issues we're dealing with. So I expect others, you know, investors, analysts, media to be concerned about that as well. Yeah, but what about the bloke who had the chip in the shoulder all those years ago? Yep. Are you enjoying the actual challenge of it all? Is this getting you out of bed in the morning? Is this what you're you know, it's not easy. It's not easy street. This is really challenging, isn't it? Yeah, but there's 5,000 people that rely on us making the right decision as well, Greg. Mm. And once again, if I think back to me being the you know, teenager or early 20s kid in Wollongong and you know, the father potentially not having a role through redundancy, that, that kind of plays on your mind. So you've got to keep turning up and you've got to keep focusing on how do you continue to move borrow forward in a way that's going to be constructive. So this business in five or 10 years is able to compete on its own merits in a much stronger way than it's been able to do in the past. It's like if you were to look back as a young man leaving university, building that career in BHP as a cadet, what advice would you give him now? Have a crack. <laughs> if I think back to, to the things that have been not so much defining, Greg, but important in my career and that I've got a lot of personal professional value out, it wasn't always a promotion. You know, in many cases, I took sideways moves for the experience. And, um, you know, I was VP finance for BHP's Australian business in petroleum. And then I took a sideways move to a smaller business in London. But I did that for the diversity of experience and I got it. And I think through that, I showed people I could uh, navigate through the complexity of different cultures, operating in multiple joint ventures. Um, you know, speaking with people and negotiating with people from different backgrounds. And that's why I think I was given that CFO role in the petroleum business. But there are a lot of people who thought, well, taking that role in the UK is about 10% of the size of the business in Australia, taking a backward step. I didn't see it that way. And I've done that two or three times in my career. And frankly, every time I've got such great development out of it. 
that's the one thing I'd just make sure that I you know, will continue to do if I was still that young kid at uni. Well, that's like, thank you very much for making the time today. Pleasure. Thanks, Greg. You've been listening to No Limitations.